This year, the Irish Sugar Company celebrates its 50th campaign. The Sugar Company is one of the great modern institutions built by the Irish people. It has been one of the most significant instruments for social change in rural Ireland. This is the story of our struggle to develop. First, a viable crop, the commodity known throughout colonial times as white gold, and later a food processing industry based on the rich resources of the land of Ireland. But back in the 30s, the battles had still to be fought, the victories still to be won. You'd imagine that everybody would agree that we should try and grow sugar if it had been proved that it was possible. But the Fianna Fáil party mounted a tremendous campaign against growing meat. And there were meetings and they would burn the contract and you know, that this is a deadly thing. And uh, I remember Tom Derrick explaining at one meeting in Carlow, at which I was present myself, and he said that, um, that the sugar factory would be only a, a haven for foreigners with soft jobs and would inevitably and eventually become a rookery for crows. Well, eventually it was decided that the sugar factory would be built. And this, of course, started another uh, big campaign. And... Uh, there were all sorts of meetings, and uh, Athai in particular was very keen to get the, the sugar factory. And Thurlis came into it, but not nearly as much. And uh, eventually we got word that uh, it had been decided. And word came, first of all, to the Royal Arms. And from there the word was sent to the Piper's Band, and the whole population turned out. And there were bonfires and celebrations to no end. And the band played continuously throughout the night. Uh, until about 3 o'clock in the morning, from about 9 o'clock at night, when it was finally confirmed, and we had tremendous celebrations in Carlow. That was Paddy Bergen from Carlow. Paddy was a sugar cook in the Carlow factory for over 20 years. The man who was making it all happen was Sean Lamass. Uh, when we came into office in 1992, there was a, a sugar factory operating by Belgian interest in, uh, in, in, in Carlow. Uh, now, we saw no reason why sugar production iron should be confined to this very small unit. But the Belgians were most reluctant to expand. We wanted uh, three or four factories of that size or greater size throughout the country. When they, when they, when they uh, refused to cooperate in uh, developing this policy of that kind, uh, their interests were bought out and the Irish Sugar Company was set up to carry out this operation. Now, Lamas was in many ways the principal strategist behind Fianna Fáil's economic policy. And what he did was to take action to reassure in a very bold manner the townspeople of Carlow that not only would the loss-making factory be kept open, but the government would actually build three more factories and take over the industry. Now, there's a side of Lamas's character here which is very interesting. He was something of a gambler, an avid poker player, a race-goer, a faintly raffish image, in fact, that he had, uh, which infuriated, if you like, some of the more puritanical people in Irish politics. But he was never afraid of a gamble. And the commitment to establishing a nationalised sugar refining industry was regarded by many as not even coming within the realm of a calculated risk. And Lamas himself knew that it was something of a long shot. And he told the doll in 1933, and I quote him, In no country in the world is sugar beet an economic proposition, if we regard it from purely an economic point of view. But there are other points of view, beside the point of view of the accountants. And we are going to provide employment, it will be a cash crop for farmers, and indirectly create new, new business. Now, of course, that dismissal of the point of view of accountants, of the narrow accountancy perspective, is a feature of Fianna Fáil in this period, and it's a feature of Lamas's political leadership. That was Professor Paul Bew from the Department of Irish Studies in Queen's University, Belfast. The 30s were a period of great uncertainty. There were abdications in Britain, show trials in Moscow, the civil war in Spain. 
Wir werden uns von euch, weil wir der Überzeugung sind, dass die Bande dieser Volksgemeinschaft sich niemals und nirgends lösen. Das, was ihr denkt in dieser Stunde, das, was euch erfüllt, dessen wollen wir nun laut gedenken. Unsere teure Heimat, unser teures deutsches Reich, sieht ein! In Germany, Hitler lured millions of disgruntled Germans into the ranks of National Socialism by promising a glorious new imperial millennium. In the USA, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal held out hope for millions of dispirited Americans. National life, a leadership of frankness and of vigor has met with that understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. Well, if you look at the European context, the most striking things are that in both Italy and in Germany there are new assumptions under a fascist state of what the role of the state can play in the economy, and particularly in Germany, the creation of a full employment economy. In the Soviet Union, in a communist state, again the state playing a much greater role in the economy and providing industrial employment. In the United States of America, under the New Deal with FDR, again the state is playing this major role in trying to combat unemployment in trying to defeat, if you like, the effects of the world crash. Now, Ireland, therefore, in one way, is in line with these developments in a very broad sense that the state now, for the first time in Irish history in 1932, decides to intervene actively in the field of industrial employment and feels it has a responsibility in that area. Back home in Ireland, the victory of Fianna Fáil at the 1932 general election was greeted with gloomy predictions about the future of Irish democracy. Faced with mass unemployment in the towns and subsistence farming in the countryside, one of the new government's first moves was to establish Kolokth Shukra Éireann. Well, it was all part of a general policy. The present Fianna Fáil leader, Charles Hawhey. They were a new government, a government which came in with a great crusading spirit. Uh, they wanted to build up the country's economy and they also wanted to develop the country socially. In particular, they were very much aware that up to that stage, Ireland was basically an agricultural country. And of course, they saw quite clearly that uh, in, a, in the modern world, by and large, uh, agricultural countries were the poor countries, whereas the industrial countries were the rich countries. They wanted to get into industry. They wanted to build up a, a modern Irish industry. And in this case, it seemed to them to be ideal because they could build up a modern industry which would be based on an agricultural resource, resource, namely sugar beet. Of course, apart from that, their whole philosophy was uh, to produce things for ourselves, produce goods and services for ourselves, and not to have to import them. At that time, we were importing sugar from all over the world, uh, and they saw no reason why we shouldn't grow our own beet and produce our own sugar from it. It was very much part of a whole ethos uh, of self-sufficiency, economic independence, and so on. In those days, also, Fianna Fáil, of course, were very much committed to the whole idea of the, the semi-state uh, principle. In other words, they knew uh, that for traditional and other reasons, uh, private enterprise in Ireland uh, would not go into various risk areas uh, and, and undertake the national job that needed to be done. Uh, so they, if the job was going to be done at all, they had to find some new way, some new mechanism of doing it. And, of course, the semi-state company was the answer. Uh, and the Irish Sugar, was, sugar Company, or Coroc Sugar Erin, 
was probably the, the, the symbol of that whole uh, semi-state area enterprise. But what was it like to work in a sugar factory in the 30s? In, in a sugar factory, in a beet sugar factory, there are two sites. One is what's called the raw site, and the other is the refinery. Now, in the raw site, you deal with the beet itself. Uh, the beet comes in there, washed and cleaned, and it's then sliced and the, the juice extracted from it. Now, there is no great heat uh, generated there, no, no, nothing that would be oppressive. But when, when that beet eventually, uh, when that juice, the juice is now extracted out of the beet, the beet is sliced into what's called cossets and uh, goes through a diffusion process and is clarified then by the addition of various acids and alkalines and filtered and all. And eventually it's a, a clear juice uh, with about, say, 16% of sugar in, in, contained in water in a solution. And this is passed through a lot of filters uh, and, like, cleaned as much as is possible. And then it's sent down to be cooked, what they call cooked, and that's to, where it becomes crystallised. Now, in this end of the place, it would be very warm, and uh, people have described it as a jungle atmosphere, you know, where, where it's not only warm, but humid, very humid, and uh, very unpleasant to work in, you know. Jim Plunkett, a beet grower. Well, my first experience of sugar beet was being kept from school in the 30s, sometime in the 30s, to pull sugar beet by hand and crown it with a knife and draw it from the field to the station with a horse and cart. Um, this operation would be going on for two days before uh, you're, you would be due to load a wagon of beet on the station. It would have to be carried, carted to the station with a horse and cart, um, dumped at the station, and then when the wagon would arrive, whatever day it would arrive, it would have to be transferred from the yard into the wagon. That was my first brush with the sugar beet industry. When the seed emerged, you had to go along by hand and single out the beet and leave it about nine inches apart and weed it by hand. There were no sprays or no, none of this modern technology at all. Then as the beet grew during the summertime, you would have to go back into it again and pull the weeds out, mostly kneeling on your knees because they would be that numerous that you couldn't stoop or stay stooping. You'd have to go on your knees in it and go right through the crop to try and control the weeds to let the crop grow. And uh, it was a massive labour-intensive crop, uh, entailing hundreds of man-hours to grow an acre of sugar beet. It was very, very heavy work. And uh, all farmers, you know, that I suppose at the time could afford to live otherwise wouldn't be growing sugar beet, but it was the cash crop for the poorer type farmers, and it was appreciated at the time that it was, it was, it was a crash cr cash crop. The advance in the sugar beet crop was looked on as being a kind of a red letter day of a life for the farmers, and uh, I suppose in hindsight it was an exciting time to be living in, and um, maybe with all the hard work and everything else, it's maybe it was a better time to be living in then than it is now. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Lay way back, you cats. Dig in. Bivouac, yes. Mr. Mac is moving in. By 1941, the great powers were engaged in a total global war, but Ireland remained aloof from the conflict. 
By now, the sugar company was well established and profitable, and everybody was making do with rations, trading with spivs, and avoiding the glimmer man. After all, it was an emergency. Most of Arrow's three millions rest from the soil, a living which would be poverty this side the Irish Sea. But unlike the English, they do not generally want more than they have. In many ways, the Irish peasants, sharing their cottage with the pig, living on potatoes, are freer than the English artisan. The Irish outlook is always less material. Characteristically, when De Valera told the farmers that because he had stopped payment of the English annuities, Britain had raised a tariff wall against their produce, they cheered. He had given them back their cherished grievance, England as the villain of the peace. We reminded that we said that one of our first acts would be to get rid of the Ottoman Egypt. England was the chief market for Irish produce. Without English custom, they might starve. But what was that against the fact that De Valera had revived the old hostility between two countries which had seemed in danger of drifting towards peace? The Irishman is little interested in what the rest of the world calls progress. Offer him the material things of life and you may leave him unmoved. Appeal to his imagination, his soul, his sense of injustice, and he is your man. But the realities for Eyre's three millions were very different. I think it's important to note that during the war years, compulsory tillage was introduced and one-eighth of all arable land was put under the plough. Indeed, by 1944, that mandatory proportion was increased to three-eighths. Now, the interesting thing here is that for the first and only time since the Declaration of Irish Independence, decisions affecting agricultural production were not left for the whim of individual farmers. The government, acting in what it conceived to be the national interest, forced farmers to grow wheat, vegetables, sugar beets, cereals and other crops, and acreage under the plough rose quite dramatically in this period, um, from 1.5 million acres to 2.6 million in five years, 1939-44. At any rate, by 1943, you have 50,000 farmers growing beet, and the sugar company was producing over 80,000 tonnes a year. Yet sugar, bread, butter and tea were all rationed from 1942 onwards, but it was a small price to pay for neutrality. During the war, Ireland was sealed off from the rest of Europe. It was insular and remote. The ideal Ireland that we would have, the Ireland that we dreamed of, would be the home of a people who valued material wealth only as a basis for right living, of a people who, satisfied with frugal comfort, devoted their leisure to the things of the spirit, a land whose countryside would be bright with cosy homesteads, whose fields and villages would be joyous with the sounds of industry, with the romping of sturdy children, the contests of athletic youths, and the laughter of happy maidens, whose firesides would be forms for the wisdom of serene old age, the home, in short, of a people living the life that God desires that men should live. The gap between the St. Patrick's Day speech of De Valera in 1943, which conjures up the traditional rural vision of Ireland and the assumptions that in some way Ireland is essentially above all a rural community, and this is what's specific about the Irish contribution to civilization. There's a gap between that and what is actually being said in, in the cabinet and the type of future that's been mapped out for Ireland, particularly in the thinking of somebody like the Mass. I'd come to the conclusion that there was no further industrial development possible on this basis, the basis of supplying the whole market behind the tariff barrier, and that we now had to think in terms of industries geared for export. And policy then began to change. The emphasis came off protection and in favour of uh, export aids and stimulation, 
and uh, tax reliefs, industrial grants and these sort of things. One of the most remarkable things about this period is that you find Sean Lamas from 1944 onwards being prepared to argue that the state should set a level of productivity that an agricultural holding should reach. And in the case where the farmer failed to reach that level of productivity, then the state should quote-unquote displace farmers who'd, who'd, who were, in a sense, not achieving uh, the objectives that the nation uh, required. That certainly was a very uh, radical comment. And uh, to be quite honest about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Because uh, I know of no farmer who could be just described as being inefficient a farmer may be ill for a time, he may go through a bad period financially, he may have difficulties, but by and large, uh, the tradition of farming has been handed down from farmer to son, and we are very fortunate that usually the, the, the man most likely to succeed in farming has inherited a farm. That comment was from Paddy Hegarty, who is the present Minister of State for Agriculture. After the war, the sugar company got a new boss, a dynamic soldier, Lieutenant General Michael J. Costello. Well, I had intended leaving the army in any event at the end of the war, and uh, one of the directors of the sugar company became aware of this intention on my part, and he persuaded me to join the sugar company. I had uh, become acquainted with the service and manufacturers in my military capacity because both of them had very effective and very active uh, units of the local defence force. So I had some idea of the labour problems facing the company and I had uh, from general reading and from particularly from the reading of the works of Thomas Brockett, I had what might be considered revolutionary ideas so I told this uh, man in court that I didn't think that the Board of Directors would accept the ideas which I put forward. Somewhat to my surprise, I found that uh, Williams and Adlam accepted them fully, and they accepted the thesis that the long-term future of the sugar company lay in a cooperative enterprise in which the farmers and the workers would both have a stake. Maurice Sheehy, the present managing director, well remembers Costello's style of command. Costello was a great man to work under. Uh, I certainly enjoyed working under. He was an inspiration to everybody who worked in, 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 the, in the company. Um, he certainly didn't spare himself and didn't uh, want anybody else to spare themselves, themselves either. Um, he came at a very critical time in, 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 the, in the company. Uh, just immediately after the war after the war years and it was a very very difficult time at farming level uh, as well as in the factory at that time and he brought a new, a new spirit into the industry and um, he, he really built on then on what had happened during the war when people had to make do and find other ways uh, he um, not only looked at the requirement the industry itself but uh, on what it was necessary to build the industry there, where the infrastructure around didn't satisfy the requirements of the industry, he did a lot in, in that area, and that's how we became involved in some of the other ancillary activities in which we are now engaged, like quarrying activities, engineering activities, fertilizer, agrochemicals. Um, it began in a small way during the war, but then it was formalized uh, in a very definite way by the gentleman. 
General Costello, by any standards, was an enormous individual. He's one of the most extraordinary men I've ever met in my life. He certainly is the only man I was ever afraid of in my life. And um, I know that within the company, he operated a situation, I think, in which most people were afraid of him. Now, I don't know whether he knew that or not. I only know that I was and that most of the people around me were as well. At the same time, I had enormous personal loyalty to him. And that loyalty was shared all around the company. Brendan Halligan, a former sugar company executive and a leading Labour Party figure over the last 20 years. But what are Charles Hawhey's recollections of that time? That time the Irish Sugar Company was under the general uh, inspired leadership uh, of General Coslo, who was a most unique man uh, and who really had a mission in life. He, he didn't see the sugar company just as a, as a mere commercial operation for making sugar. He, he saw it as, as a sort of father figure in the whole Irish agricultural scene. Uh, and he wanted to spearhead uh, agricultural development in every way, and he also wanted to spearhead all sorts of uh, subsidiary activities connected with the agricultural industry. The principal function of an army officer is to manipulate men, to influence men, to get them to die cheerfully, if necessary, or some ideal. And I think that in uh, any industrial enterprise, the greater part, by far the most important thing in industrial enterprise, is the two-legged animal that operates the machines. Machines themselves are inanimate, and uh, it is the morale and the skill of the worker that is really the decisive factor. There isn't any question about uh, his personal kindnesses to people, uh, his interest in them as individuals, the fact that he knew their name, their families that he would stop and ask them about their families, that he would remember the tiniest detail of your life, uh, which was extraordinary because so many thousands of people. And uh, he knew every part of the country in his head. You, no matter where you said we were engaged in something, or you were meeting somebody, or you, we were buying a piece of land here, he would know the person, he would know the area. And you had this um, feeling that you were dealing with somebody who was om omniscient. Now, quite clearly he was human, the same as everybody else. but. Great managers and good leaders have the ability to uh, appear to be uh, everywhere at all time and knowing everything. In the 50s, Costello opened up the struggle on all fronts. He led the company into unexplored territory like seed production, soil testing, fertilisers and the design and manufacture of agricultural machines. The ranks of the workforce trebled with all this activity. So what was the secret of the company's success? It was an extraordinary place to work in. At one point it was like a university uh, for training future managers. And I think the Irish Sugar Company has never got sufficient credit and has certainly never been paid by the Department of Finance for training all these people. I keep bumping into them at all levels of Irish life subsequently. And it was an exciting place to be. It was the sort of place where you worked on a Saturday and you didn't look for overtime. Or you worked at eight until 8 o'clock at night. Or you came in on a Sunday morning. Um, you just didn't look for any uh, recompense. You were paid and you, you felt you were contributing something to the development of this country. And all around the place you would find uh, groups of people talking, uh, excited about a new project, arguing about a new product, working on a new process. And Coslow certainly was the man who caused all that to happen. I'd say the farmers had a major input into it. Um, especially from 
the sixties on when the um the machinery became available to harvest the harvest the harvest to be the harvesting end of it was the real um heavy work and uh, when the machinery became available i'd say nobody put as much into it as the farmers the vast majority of irish farmers um, subsistence level w w was the situation and he wanted to use the sugar company to first of all to inculcate a spirit of independence and a spirit of enterprise and get farmers thinking about new possibilities and new developments and he wanted to use the vast resources of the sugar company and it had vast resources in those days he wanted to use those vast resources to help every possible aspect of Irish agriculture into which he could usefully interfere that was the Coslow mission and he had a very very favourable ear in Sean Lamas in that sort of mentality and thinking I wish we had some of that mentality around today. The paradox is that at this time in the 1950s, the Irish Sugar Company prospered while Irish agriculture was stagnant. Moments of Irish agriculture remained lacklustre and unimpressive to say the least. Between 1909 and 1959, it's estimated that Irish agricultural output in terms of volume was virtually static. And Ireland actually remained for much, much of this period a dependent neo-colony of Britain exporting live cattle, sheep, pigs and other agricultural produce and return for industrial machinery, raw materials and coal from the UK. The fundamental problem is this. There were too many farmers on unviable holdings of less than 15 acres and there were too many farmers also not realising the potential of their land. During the 50s, nearly half a million people were to leave our shores in search of a livelihood. It was really dreadful because um, you would have maybe three or four hundred people at the railway station. The, the English agent would come over and he would go to the labour exchange and he would interview all of the people at the labour exchange and if you could walk well, that was it, and uh, you were taken, and you, there was a job for you in England. There was no, nothing to worry about, you see. You just went down and collected your ticket and all that sort of stuff, and then you went to the train with a red ribbon in your buttonhole. And uh, they all got on together on the train, and they went off to Liverpool or London or wherever the train was going, and um, then they were picked up by the agent again, and uh, he brought them to wherever they were allotted to in the various jobs. But it was heartbreaking to see this almost like slaves going off, docked at and, and going away. Now, they got good wages and they were well treated in England. There's no question about it. And most of them did very well. It was an extremely black and depressed period. The level of immigration was remarkably high. About 40,000 people a year were, were leaving annually between 1951 and 1956. In fact, levels of immigration were higher in the 50s than they were under the last decades of British rule. And that obvious failure seemed to leave a question mark against the whole project of political independence. The 40th anniversary of the Easter Rising in 1916, which fell in 1956, was in fact a rather gloomy and depressed affair, not a triumphal occasion at all. And the Irish Times in 1956, in a famous editorial, declared on the problem of immigration, if the trend disclosed continues unchecked, Ireland will die, not in the remote, unpredictable future, but quite soon. And I think perhaps it's worth adding that this relative economic failure uh, was, of course, in sharp contrast 
with the relative economic success at that time of the regime in Belfast. There was, was appallingly high levels of emigration, uh, and uh, there was very, very little um, native employment, certainly with nothing like a, a, a modern industry in the sense that we know it today. So uh, in Fianna Fáil, at any rate, there was a, an overwhelming, urgent motivation to change that situation. We couldn't see, uh, those of us who were coming into Fianna Fáil at that time, we couldn't see why Ireland had to be a, a third-rate, never mind second-rate uh, nation uh, in Europe, uh, why with her various natural resources uh, and her uh, intelligent population, why she couldn't take her place in the modern world uh, with, with standards of living uh, and services and so on, uh, equivalent to what was generally available throughout Europe. Uh, it was in that context that we set about uh, the industrial uh, and social development programmes of the 1950s. In 1959, Sean Lamas took over from De Valera as Taoiseach. He launched a crusade to save a dying society. Lamas opened the door to foreign capital. But state enterprise was also to play a crucial role in Fianna Fáil's first economic programme. Now, it was in that context uh, that General Costello in particular, uh, and the sugar company and his board, uh, and the executives and the personnel involved, went out into, as it were, the economic highways and byways. Uh, to try and find ways in which, uh, based on the agriculture or on, on our agriculture, they could find uh, viable and profitable uh, operations. And of course, it was in that context, really, it was out of that context and those programs of economic expansion that the whole business of uh, horticultural, uh, horticultural adjunct to the Shunger Company's operation uh, was devised. In the early 60s, the sugar company moved into the processing of vegetables. Erin Foods was set up, but there were restrictions from the start. Erin Foods could not sell on the home market more than 10% of its output for any particular product if that product were already on sale in the Irish market. So this was to, I would, as I would see it, from the point of view of the Department of Finance, was to protect existing Irish food manufacturers. Uh, if that were the case, it was a decision of the utmost stupidity, which has eff effectively wrecked any possibility of uh, an, an efficient Irish food processing industry, because uh, such limitations were completely impossible to live with. It meant that you had to export 90%, and uh, no company can grow properly unless it has a very firm home market. The situation was that you would have had a great big monolithic state company, namely the sugar company, with all the resources of the state behind it and with a monopoly sugar situation to back it up. You would have had that company coming into a market, a domestic market, which wasn't very big anyway, uh, and um, certainly competing very, very unfairly with those uh, private enterprise companies who are already in the market. Now today, perhaps we will take a different view and we say, well, let private enterprise fight its corner and uh, stand up to the semi-state competition uh, as best it can. At that time, uh, we all felt that the sky was the limit and that there was no end to what uh, we could produce, uh, you know, and the fact that it didn't turn out as well as we thought, uh, I don't think it's any blame to the farmers and certainly not to Erin Foods. Uh, a number of factors, I think, at the time, chiefly among them being the fact that in the UK they got the same idea as well. And, uh, just at a time when we were uh, trying to invade that market, 
they were flooding the market with a similar type of product. And coupled, of course, with the fact, and I think this should never have been allowed, uh, that we were only allowed to sell a very small percentage of our produce in the whole market. I think that was a stupid decision. It was not allowed to develop as it, it should have been able to develop. Number two, I think that the great mistake that was made once Tony O'Reilly became managing director of the Irish Sugar Company to link the food uh, division with the Heinz, you know. Um, I think it was obvious, and I'll say this to you, that Tony O'Reilly had no commitment to the sugar company. He was the wrong man to choose. And consequently, of course, it restricted again the, the foods division. It was no advantage. The food section should stand on its own. We could produce the goods, manufacture it, and market it. There's a demand for that. So I think that went. That was really what went wrong. We wanted somebody who had the know-how and to get on with the job. I think it would have been more successful today. That was Junior Minister Paddy Hegarty and Joe Sherlock of the Workers' Party, who was also an employee of the company. The Erin Row ended dramatically with General Costello's resignation. Well, I resigned because of this, because of the fact that uh, we had come to the parting of the ways. I saw no possibility of Erin Woods uh, developing on anything like the lines I had uh, foreseen. And on the, or anything like the lens on which it had uh, up to that time developed. I resigned also because uh, there was a running war between myself and the Department of Finance. Again, activated, I would think, by some outside influence, the objectives to the publication of economic data in the annual reports of the company on the grounds that by publication of this data we were giving something away competitors. I no notice with some pleasure that the EC is about to compel companies to publish such economic data one of these days and it is not surprising that among the objectors to this is the Irish government. And I think their objection can only be founded on uh, protecting the interests of some of the multinationals, certainly not in the interests of the Irish consumer or the Irish worker or the Irish producer. When he left, it was like as if a huge, big tent inside which tremendous activities were going on, not just a three-ring circus, but a, a multi-ring circus, that this huge tent just slowly collapsed and all the acts stopped. And then slowly but surely, <coughs> everybody left the company. Uh, not everybody, lots of good people stayed behind, but I would think that they would say the fun went out of it, the excitement went out of it, the, um, the vision went out of it. In the mid-60s, a new man took over, Dr Tony O'Reilly, a man of his time. His solution to the air and foods problems was to forge an alliance with a giant multinational Heinz. As you know, at that time, uh, Mr Tony O'Reilly uh, was the uh, chief executive of the, of the sugar company uh, and of air and foods, and this whole... Uh, arrangement with Heinz was devised uh, and brought into being by him uh, under, of course, the overall uh, guidance and supervision and authority of the government. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as things worked out, uh, Mr O'Reilly, uh, very shortly after the arrangement came into being, uh, was offered an opportunity with Heinz, uh, and he walked away from the whole Heinz-Ern operation uh, and went on to pursue a, a personally 
a successful career with Heinz, but unfortunately Heinz Ern and Ern Foods uh, was left uh, very much in the lurch uh, and, from, and never really uh, achieved the original objectives which were, uh, which were put forward by Mr. Riley as chief executive and subsequently endorsed fully and enthusiastically by the government. So when you ask me basically who benefited, uh, I can say to you that certainly the uh, Irish uh, vegetable growers did not benefit and Aaron Foods did not benefit. The sugar company lost a great deal of very, very scarce and valuable capital resources and I leave it to yourself to draw your own conclusions as to who benefited most from that particular operation. But I think that you must look at all of these projects from the point of view not only of benefit but also of cost. And the cost surely to the Irish Sugar Company and to the Irish economy, to the Irish taxpayer and indeed to maybe tens of thousands of young people who are currently unemployed is that we did not build an indigenous food manufacturing industry. That has been the great tragedy of the Irish economy. It remains so. It's more than a tragedy. It's a total disgrace. It's a scandal. And the Irish Sugar Company was stopped dead in its tracks. Already burdened with Aaron's losses and heavy interest payments, EEC Entry presented the sugar company with a stiff challenge. The industry was curtailed then with uh, EEC regulations as to quotas, as to prices you paid for the product and as to prices you get for the for your, your, your commodity were thrown right in, to, in there. And we had then to modernise very quickly. And uh, that put a great strain on the company because it hadn't the resources to do to do so and we had to incur uh, heavy borrowings in order to, to do so and this uh, and any any problems that the industry had really arose uh, from that as a result of that count mr crotty has exceeded the quota and i deem him elected well indeed the same pattern i think i'm right in saying that the carlo kilkenny constituency after three elections within 18 months, there was political and economic uncertainty during the first years of the 1980s. There were job losses in the sugar company. The future looked uncertain with government reluctant to finance state enterprise in an era of austerity. Paddy Hegarty. In the times that are in it, we have to look very carefully uh, again at every single project. It has to be economic. Uh, we are prepared to put in pretty large sums of money into an industry that has that is, uh, that is seen to have long-time viability. And I think that has been our attitude and a very positive one towards the Irish sugar industry. Uh, there, there's now a, a apparently a type of mentality and thinking uh, which doesn't see a broad scene, which cannot see beyond the little column figures, uh, and which, uh, if, um, if, if, which never says, look, we have difficulties, how are we going to overcome them uh, and go on and, and build in, in, in a new direction uh, or grasp new opportunities uh, which have come up in, new, in changing circumstances. That doesn't seem to be the mentality uh, in a lot of areas today. The mentality seems to be we have difficulties, pull down the shutters, close, liquidate, uh, and that's the end of the story. I'm afraid that that is a very real uh, psychosis in modern Ireland and one which will have to be confronted and defeated if we are to get back to any progress uh, and to get back on any path of economic development. And they set out, I would think, to crucify that company 
and uh, by and large succeeded it and have placed it back into a, a rather safe box from which I would think it would be very loath to emerge. The Irish Sugar Company has given 50 years of heroic and distinguished service to this community. It's not just a commercial semi-state body, it's an integral part of the landscape of modern Ireland and a pointer to our economic future. So what does the future hold for the Irish Sugar Company and state enterprise? This country would be a lot poorer today were it not for the contribution of state companies since the state began. but many times down through the years, and I suppose at no time more than the present, the state enterprise is being knocked, and that's very easy to do for pe- people who are on the ditch. Uh, there is no good reason why state enterprise uh, shouldn't and couldn't be just as efficient as private enterprise when it's properly run. And I think the sugar company has been a, uh, an outstanding example of what the state can do when it gets its act right. Out there, that land of ours is our greatest natural resource. That beet crop can be very lucrative to growers, can provide very good, well-paid jobs in our sugar factories. The same applies to the food. We can produce the vegetables, have them manufactured and marketed in our own country, and that's where we should be developing. And it has a future. It must be. It must change course, of course. It must become more efficient. It's reaching that point, I think, now we're trying to talk about the, the modernization of the, the plants and so forth. But it has a future, and if, if it didn't have a future, if the sugar company doesn't have a future because of the great the amount of employment and the great uh, prospects there are and the great amount of finance or money that it puts in circulation in this country, I think this country would be no more. If the Irish Sugar Company could not survive and have a future in this agricultural country of ours, well then, we could put up the shutters. It's back on the rails again, and there's no doubt at all in my mind that it will be, uh, it will stay in the black. Uh, and because of their rationalisation programme, both in sugar and in food, uh, you know, it will be again a net contributor to the taxpayer. And mind you, as an industry that has been very labour-intensive, uh, the sugar company must be one of the single biggest employers in the country at the moment. How does the company, the Irish Sugar Company, stand today? I would think uh, in in great peril. All state companies stand in great peril today. The Irish Sugar Company is undercapitalized. It has been deliberately starved of capital over a long period of time by different governments. The motto at the moment is "Make no waves." The Irish Sugar Company today doesn't have the great big remit that it had in its early days. It has to compete in a, in a very competitive world and a restricted world because, as you know, the EEC has, a, has its own restrictions on sugar uh, production uh, and the, the sugar company has to operate in a different type of world. But I believe uh, if it goes about it in the right way, it can uh, develop a new approach to this new world and find a very satisfactory basis of operation in this new world if the right philosophy is there and if the commitment is there. But if in the Department of Finance and in all the state companies and everywhere else there's going to be this myopic preoccupation with columns of figures uh, and some mathematical balance at the end of the day, then uh, there's not much future uh, for the sugar company or indeed for Irish industry generally. In 1984, we have two million people living in the cities. We have a quarter of a million people unemployed. We have a strong feeling throughout the society that the resources of Irish land are not fully utilised. It does seem to me that it's 
at least worth saying that if the sugar company doesn't have a future, then it seems to me that Irish agriculture, indeed Irish society as a 